at 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1 this morning. And I'm going to take this week at least and maybe next week in 1 John because I'm desiring to continue to follow in the wake of what I preached last week, which was on the wide road that leads to destruction and the narrow road that leads to life. We kind of worked our way through Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus' fantastic Sermon on the Mount, the greatest message ever preached. And the ending of that message in crescendo is the gospel. And it's Jesus saying, here is the narrow road that leads to life. And for some reason, I just couldn't, couldn't let go of the gospel this week. And I am burdened for us to continue to think about eternal life and eternal judgment. And what part we play in terms of giving the truth to people. The message of life to meet people's deepest need with the gospel. And 1 John chapter 1 is a place that the Lord led me to, which opens up again the gospel to us this morning. Follow as I read verses 5 through 10. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. How many of you have followed the news drama surrounding the 29, or 33 men rather, that were trapped down in that deep, deep pit in Chile? They were miners trapped down 2,300 feet under the earth's surface. And it was quite a drama because it was a a record amount of days that they were down there. They were down there 69 days, 700 meters deep in the San Jose Copper Gold Mine in Capiapo, Chile. They went down and tragically were, were trapped on August the 5th this year. And then ultimately, they were rescued on October the 13th up through a 28-inch portal, miles up to the surface, taken up through this sort of contraption that was created called the Felix II, a rescue capsule, where they were emerging one after the other. Did any of you see them emerge live on TV? We We actually happened to cross it on TV and watch them ascending together. There was someone that held up a sign, I think it was on the back of a t-shirt or something, that said, Mission Completa Chile, which means Mission Accomplished Chile. And many people are saying that this was an event that has brought the nation together in greater unity, valuing human life more than anything else. What was interesting to me was just to observe how separated they really were, how deep they were down there in that cavern. It was like a a living tomb that they were in. But at the same time, they were not completely cut off, were they? 
there was a borehole that was drilled down 2,200 feet. And through the borehole, they were receiving regular supplies. They were receiving flashlights and food and vitamin pills and different things that they needed. I heard someone between services said that they sent down Bibles at one point. In these long, five-foot-long capsules, they were sending supplies. And they were called dove capsules. And they were going down and they even sent video equipment down, right? So you could see on YouTube or or even on TV, different episodes and vignettes where they're saying hi to their family and they're saying, we're okay. At one point, there was this sort of subset story where one of the miners had a child that was born, his third child and daughter was born, and they had a predetermined name that he changed by sending something back up the dove tube that takes an hour to get down and an hour to go back up. He sent up the name Esperanza. Name my new daughter Esperanza because that means hope. And thinking about all of these things made me think about being separated and what that would be like. And I began to think in terms of eternal separation. Perhaps the imagery of just being down in the earth made me think about what it would be like to be separated from my loved ones in hell forever and ever. And there's a difference, though, between the separation that these miners experienced and the separation that comes in hell. And it's found in one word. The miners, when they were separated, always had hope that they were going to be returned to their loved ones. But the tragedy of hell is that once you're there, you have no hope of being reconciled and brought back to your loved ones or to God. You're separated in hell forever and ever, eternally. I had a friend uh, that I talked to this weekend. He told me that his marriage has hit the rocks and that he has become separated from his wife. I was thinking about that. I was thinking he's sitting in his apartment separated from his wife who's in their home with their child. That separation brings intense pain, intense anguish, probably something that some of you have gone through or perhaps are going through even this morning. It's, it's deep despair to go through something like that. But that doesn't even begin to touch the eternal damnation and angst that's found in hell. That kind of separation is so much more, so much deeper, because there is no hope once you are there. And that's why I'm bringing another message on the gospel. Because it's so important once we are exposed to the wide road that leads to eternal destruction compared to the narrow road that leads to life. It's so important for us to think people are on the wide road. And we need to give them a lifeline. Because frankly, we are the only ones here on earth as Christians who have the lifeline. We're the only life house, right? We're it. Other religions will not save people who are on the wide road. So we have the gospel. And I want us to be familiar with it. I want us to search our own hearts, even this morning, and and think and ask ourselves questions. Am I possibly on the wide road that leads to destruction? Or am I on the narrow road? Have I found life? Am I to be named with the few who find it? Because if not, we need to humble ourselves, don't we? And you need to come to Christ. 
And on the other hand, I want you to think about other people. And a a passage like this one is one that can help you evaluate where people are spiritually. Because if you can't discern who's on the wide road and who's on the narrow road, then what help can you be to people? Very little. This, This passage is one that I want to look at this morning. And perhaps we'll look at another one next week in 1 John. And then we'll be going into 2 Thessalonians. I finished 1 Thessalonians before and had intended to get back to 2 Thessalonians, and so we'll be there soon. But I want us to this morning look at 1 John. Let me give you a little context of 1 John. John, the apostle, is an aged apostle, and he's the only remaining apostle at this time. He's the only one left alive, and so he's writing a very pastoral book to churches that were splashed across Asia Minor in modern-day Turkey. These are his beloved children. These are like his church plants that he's giving this cyclical letter around to where they can pass it from one church to the next. And what he's addressing in this book is the church's deepest need. Do you see it? The church's deepest need. Are you in the kingdom? Are you going to heaven or are you not? That's what this unique book is all about. It's a one of a kind in the Bible. It's a litmus test to see whether or not you are saved or not. It's an evaluative book. It's a test to affirm your faith. If you turn back to 1 John 5.13, John says, I write these things, this whole book, these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. He wrote the book so that Believers would read it and find affirmation or encouragement that they are in the kingdom or find out that they're not and that they need to be. That's why he wrote the book. He wants the readers to ask themselves, do I love believers? Do I love the world? My friendship Is my friendship with God and Christ and his people or with the world? Am I a person who loves truth or do I love to lie? Do I love error? Do I love errors? Do I love false teaching or false teachers? Or or do I love the true gospel? Do I love the true Christ? Or do I love this false Christ that's being preached? That's what this book of the Bible begs, is these kinds of questions. 1 John 1, 9, do I regularly find myself confessing my sins to God or not? That's what 1 John is all about. And so in this section, verses 5 through 10... We're going to look at three definitions that make plain a person's spiritual condition. Three definitions. Definition number one is this. Verse five, the definition of God. Verse five is God defined. We could camp all morning and all week on verse five. But we're not. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. It's a definition of God. It's an authoritative declaration and definition because it's not just coming from the Apostle Paul. It's the, the Apostle John. It's the Apostle John quoting Jesus. He says, this is the message we have heard from him. John is saying, listen, I'm the aged apostle. I might be viewed as this venerable saint and beloved mentor and father figure in your life. But this is a message that I heard from the lips of Jesus. And now I'm re-proclaiming it to you. 
It's weighty. It's authoritative. This is your God, is what he's saying. I proclaim that God is light. And God being defined, let me just say this, is the litmus test for our spirituality. We are either in common with this kind of God or we are not. We are either with him, this God who is held in high glory and holiness, or we're not. And so this is where he begins his gospel presentation. And should probably often be where we begin with people. When we begin to share the message of the good news, we need to share the character of God. And that's what he's doing. He's sharing God. The false teachers wanted to destroy this message by destroying the messenger. They wanted to discredit Jesus. They were trying to say that Jesus really wasn't a physical being, these false teachers were. They were called Gnostics. You say, where do I get that from? Well, if you look at verse 1, look at what John is saying. He's saying, that which is from the beginning, meaning the beginning of Christ's ministry, which we have heard, we heard him, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. John is saying, look, I've heard these messages directly from the lips of Jesus. And oh, by the way, let me tell you who Jesus is. He was the God-man, fully physical. I I heard him, I saw him, I touched him. Oh, by the way, at Passover, I laid across his chest. These false teachers were coming in and they were trying to mess up the gospel by saying, look, physicality and flesh, now that's sinful. This is like Greek philosophy, right? It's sinful. And so that Jesus, for him to be perfect, had to be more um, like a phantom or a ghost. Perhaps he, he grew up as the carpenter's son and, and then did his ministry. But when the Spirit of God rested upon him at baptism, that's when he became more ethereal, like a phantom. And, and it had been 40 or 50 years since Christ had been raised from the dead and, and ascended to the right hand of the Father. And so these false teachers were assuming that memory is faulty and, and that things, you know, will, will switch around. Or perhaps their memory was faulty. But John is trying to jog everybody's memory to say, no, Jesus was fully human. And verse 2 here, he was fully God. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you, watch this, the eternal life. That is a direct reference to Christ being eternal. Watch this. The eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Who was with the Father? The Son, Jesus Christ. Forever, eternally with the Father. So Jesus is fully man, fully flesh, and fully God, the eternal one. The reference here with the Father is proston patera. That means face-to-face with the Father. Jesus always has been. He was, he is, and he's what? Is to come. He's the same today, yesterday, and what? Forever. This is our messenger. And because the messenger is the God-man, the message is true and strong in verse 5 that God is light. You know, if you undo the God-man, you undo the cross, you undo the cross, you undo salvation, right? Without the shedding of blood, there's no what? Remission of sins. Jesus had to be fully man, right? Yes and amen. He had to be. Hebrews 9.22. That's why Thomas touched his wounds and he said, 
Jesus said, reach in and touch my side. Why did he do that? So that Thomas would realize this is the sacrificial lamb who's risen from the dead. What did Thomas do? He said, my Lord and my God. This is our God. And he's giving the true message about the nature of God, which is that he is light. It's a comprehensive declaration. What God is. What is he? He's light. The, the idea of light is a metaphor. It's a word picture. Like when you look at the sun and how the blazing sun will damage your eyes if you stare into it too long, right? It will hurt your eyesight. And that is a microcosmic, small example of who God is as light. For us to approach God as light is to be blinded, is to be humbled. He is separated in his holy perfection. Like the blazing sun, anything that would approach it would be subsumed and consumed immediately and destroyed apart from Christ. So this is what God is. God is perfect in unmixed perfection. Now what God is not is the second half of verse 5. And in him is no darkness at all. Now the word no here is a double negative. It's a double negative. Let me give you an example of how someone might have used it in Greek culture. Just think, uh, there's a Greek teenage gal, and she's going to Greek teenage high school and hanging out, and some Greek teenage dude comes along and says, hey, you know, would you like to go out and get, you know, a Greek um, salad or something? And she says, uh, you know, and she's kind of not totally sure that whether or not she might say yes down the road. But as women in that situation may or may not do, they want to say no, but no might mean maybe. Uh, no, no, that's okay. Thank you very much. That's an ooh. That, in the Greek, that would be ooh, not ooh, but ooh. And then if she saw this guy coming up again and she thought, you know, I never want to go get a Greek salad with him, ever. Not even with Caesar dressing or nothing. I just don't want him whatsoever. She would say in the Greek, ooh, may, which means no way, Jose. I never want to go out with you. And so I'm telling you a definite no and a final no that we are not going to go out together. That's what's used here, a double negative. And in him is ooh, may, no darkness whatsoever. In no way is God tainted by sin, by anything less than glorious. This is our God. James 1.13 says that when someone is tempted, they can't blame God for the sinful temptation because temptation doesn't come from God, neither can God be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. There's a barrier of holiness around God, a moat of glory that surrounds him in where he lives and dwells. 1 Timothy 1, 6 and 16 says, He alone has immortality who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. This is our God. Now you say, why The heavy word about God when we're talking about examining people's hearts. Wouldn't that discourage people when they're thinking about the state of their own soul? Well, look, a lot of evangelism probably wants to bring God down and put the cookies of his character on the bottom shelf or just change God altogether in a way that would make him palatable, right? 
But God doesn't need to change, does he? And he will not change. It's people's sinful hearts that need to change. We need to bring people's vision of God up, not bring the vision of God down. We need to help people see him for who he is so that we will want him and want to associate with him on his terms with who he is. This is our mission. We assume people are in Christ often when they are not because our view of God is too low. We say, oh, that person's fine. That person is, is in the kingdom. I mean, they may not respect God all the way or really um, consider who he is, but that person's fine, really? We need to start with this vision of God and try to help people. Encourage faint-hearted people, encourage smoldering wicks, encourage people to see this God for who he really is. Or to find out that people really haven't encountered this God yet at all in the first place. But God is God and we cannot change him and we dare not try to change the message of who he is. Even when Jesus came to the world, he came as a man, as an infant child and baby and carpenter's son. And in some real way, we can say that he was relating to humanity, but his vision of God was always in place, right? He, being God, said these very things. This is how Jesus communicated the message. And so we come as brothers and sisters and people who are Christians to be lights in the world. But we don't dumb down the message. We relate to people's hearts, but we keep the vision of God high. And that's what explains people's sinful conditions. That's what exposes people and opens people up. And frankly, when people have difficulty in their life, when when they're struggling and suffering, when they're dealing with hard realities, whether circumstances in marriages or life and death situations, they want this kind of God, the true God. Well, that's God defined. And then secondly, here's the definition of the hypocrite. This is who is exposed. Verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. What will a hypocrite do? A hypocrite will always lie. A hypocrite is an actor. And this is the definition of someone who's playing like they have fellowship and boldly proclaiming that they are in the fellowship, but their lifestyle is a living lie. They first speak the lie. They say we have fellowship. Uh, You know, I'm in the kingdom. I'm saying that. And then their life speaks the second message that is a bold lie. It's a bold lie. I think oftentimes when people are boldly lying, it's just a further condemnation on where people are. The the key to understanding verse 6 and to really get the punch of what John is saying here is to define the word fellowship biblically. Now when I think of fellowship, I kind of remember my earlier Southern Baptist days as a child and how I used to go to sort of a room that was set apart in the church that was called a fellowship hall. Sound familiar? You know, it was kind of uh, cinder block walls with gray paint on the sides and it smelled like oatmeal which was probably mildew upon further reflection. But all that to say, shuffleboard, you know, setting on the floor that we never played, but shuffleboard, um, you know, sticks were all around, and I drank, you know, my fair share, as you did, of watered-down Kool-Aid and uh, windmill cookies, especially during VBS in that room. Fellowship, it's the idea of getting together. But in the Bible, the word for fellowship is koinonia, and there's 
a greater depth and breadth to that word. Fellowship, or koinonia, is synonymous here with salvation. It's being saved. The word koinonia means to have in common with God, to have life in common with God. That's the word koinonia. It's to have common life with your creator, with this God described in verse 5. And when you are in common with God, when you have common life with God, then you have also common life with each other in the gospel. That's what John is talking about. That's fellowship. It's, it's eternal life with God the Father and eternal life that is shared amongst the church. If we say we have this common life, this salvation with him, and yet our life is just lived in darkness, we're the biggest liar. That's what he's saying. Living in contradiction to what we're claiming. The idea of walking is just lifestyle choices. And you say, Pastor Jeff, this kind of message kind of, you know, it, it unnerves me a bit. Because if, if you're saying what I think you're saying, then uncle such and such or aunt such and such who, who made a profession of faith and then now lives like the world and doesn't have any care or thought of God, you're saying that that person really isn't in the Lord, isn't saved? Is that what you're saying? Well, there are all kinds of scenarios where people come into the kingdom at, at, on their deathbed. People come into the kingdom and, and they, they pray and profess Christ and, and there's a genuine profession and there's genuine faith and there are sort of weak and wilting fruits that are spiritual fruits and, then, and that are observed and seen. And I understand that. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 5.14 to admonish the unruly, to encourage the faint-hearted, to help the weak and to be patient with all men. I know that people are all over the place in terms of where they are spiritually within the church and that those people are genuinely saved. I understand that. But John is being very black and white here saying, look, don't ignore the person who's just saying that they're in Christ and they're in the church and then they're living like the devil. Don't ignore that person. Don't excuse that situation. 1 John 2, 9 says, Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Could the Bible be any more clear than that? If a person is unrepentant about their hate, their hatred towards somebody else, why are we saying that person is in the light? Why would you think that someone who's hateful and doesn't repent of that hatred has anything in common with a God who is called love? Remember 1 John 4, 7 and 8? God is love. He's light. He's perfectly holy. He's also love. And so if we're in common with this loving God, we have to be loving people. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way. He said, walking in darkness represents living in such a way that you rarely have a thought of God at all. Instead, we should be the children of the light. Ephesians 5 talks about being a child of the light. Matthew 5, let your light shine before men that they would see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. It's something that will happen automatically in you and through you. You'll, you'll shine some measure of light as a Christian. But this person in verse 6 is a liar. He's disconnected with the truth. He's like a Pharisee who's a, a whited, washed 
tomb. He's got demon faith. He believes something about the gospel, but it's not happened in that person's heart. The demons believe and they shudder, James 2.19. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, what fellowship has light with darkness? What fellowship has Christ with Belial, which is a euphemism for Satan? What, what fellowship, what in common with does light have with darkness? The answer is nothing, nothing. It's a contradiction. We assume people are safe because we utterly ignore people's lifestyles, don't we? But we don't want to make that assumption. Remember, the separation from God and from each other when someone is not in Christ, when someone is on the wide road, is forever and hopeless. And so we have a chance right now to share Christ Why are you in Anchorage? You ever ask yourself that question? Why am I in Alaska? Why am I here? It's because you're supposed to be a light here. That's why you're here right now on this earth in this unique place. It's to share Christ. There's something so refreshing about being here because why be here except to share Christ with this unique community? You you don't get caught up in the lower 48 where towns and things are blurring around. No, we've got Anchorage. This is our target. Let's share the gospel, right? Let's be salt and light. Everybody knows each other here, right? So let's just be fanatics for Christ here. And then that bleeds out, obviously, to the world around us. But we have this koinonia, this fellowship, so that we can share this fellowship with other people with the message of life. And so many people want to coast into the kingdom believing that they made a genuine confession and now they have an I don't care attitude and they might be blinded to their own spiritual state headed for hell in condemnation. They're down deep 2,200 feet under the earth's surface and they don't even know it. They're not rescued yet. They haven't been delivered by the gospel yet. And we need to help people. We need to send it down the message in our tube, right? We need to send the gospel down and rescue people. With the message, and we have we have the engineering, we have the machinery in the gospel, and we're the only ones who have it. We are. Why would someone assume that they're going to heaven when they have no appetite whatsoever for the things of God or for God's holiness here on earth? Because what's heaven all about? Heaven's all about God and holiness. And if you have no appetite for that now, then why should you assume that God has set you up to be there for eternity? That's why it's so important for us to be stirred in our spirits and minds for the things of God and for holiness. That's why it's important for us to gather in the word of God to be stirred about things that are to come. But for people who have no interest or appetite in the word of God or the truth, where is their heart really? And I don't say that judgmentally. I say that as a desperate messenger trying to stir you for others. So God is defined in verse 5, and then the hypocrite is defined in verse 6, and now in verse 7, this is the definition of a true believer. Verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Verse 7. A believer will always reflect God's nature. They're in light, and so they reflect light as a lifestyle. A believer will walk in the light, will have an appetite for the light, will shine the gospel light around the world through his or her lifestyle. 
You might say, I can't meet this standard. I'm not someone who walks in the light, though I believe I'm a Christian. Well, you know what? If you're not walking in light and you are concerned about that, that still could be very well an evidence of God's grace in your life, right? 1 John 1, 9 says that, that a believer is someone who will continually confess their sins before God and God will faithfully forgive and cleanse a person from all unrighteousness. You know what the word confession is? That's the word homologeo. It means to say the same thing that God already knows to be true about you already. God is looking into your heart and he's waiting for you to confess and he's prompting you to confess your sins. And then when you open yourself up to God and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I've sinned here, here, and here. I want to change and repent. You're just opening up your relationship that already exists. And a true believer will do that, will confess his or her sins and will want things to be right, even though a person's life isn't perfect and isn't always walking well in the light. You want to. You desire to, you repent and you confess. That's why 1 John 1, 9 is so close to these verses. That's why it's there. It's the anchor. It's, it's sort of the release valve where we say, okay, the standard is high, but there's also the opportunity to make things right and continue to make things right through confession. One person put it this way, holy living is not measured by the perfection of our lives, but the direction of our lives. You see? That's a person who's walking in the light. It's a person who has a true claim, a claim that's affirmed in verse 7. We have fellowship with one another. You see the strength of that statement now that you understand what fellowship is? We have salvation with each other. We have common life in Christ shared with each other. We are the community of the saved. We are the delivered and the rescued together. We are affirmed in that. Because we we see that we have light in our life together. God's environment is light. That's what this phrase means in verse 7. When it says, as he is in the light. As he is in the light. This speaks to not God being the light, but his environment. D. Edmund Hebert put it this way. This points not directly to God's nature, but to the environment around him that his nature creates. And as believers, we share in God's nature. And people see that in our lives. When Ron Witt undergoes surgery on Tuesday or Wednesday at the Mayo Clinic, Clinic, he will be light in that hospital. Because he's a believer. I've visited people who are believers. I visited a couple in our church. A man who's now bedridden in our midst. And Steve Pauls and I visited this man. And he's emanating what? Light. Right? He's got light. Where does that come from? doesn't come from him trusting in anything he's accomplished here on earth. He's going home. Uh, why, Why do Bible verses about the future and about heaven and about joy and about finishing the race. Why does that encourage anybody that's dying? It's because they're children of the light. You say, well, that, that's great. Thank you for that sentiment. No, no, no. Everybody needs that light and we're the only ones that can give it. We're the ones that God has put on mission to do that here on earth. We assume people are safe because we don't assume that God can 
put light in somebody's life and heart like this in verse 7. Someone who walks in the light, not people who flee into the darkness, but who have light. And they're affirmed at the end of the verse. We have fellowship with one another. We're saved. We possess eternal life. And then secondly, Christians possess eternal cleansing. What does that mean? And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The cleansing blood of Jesus Christ, you might say, well, I thought that cleansed me when I got saved in the past. And that's true. But the cleansing power and dynamic of the blood of Jesus covers your sin in the past in totality. But as you keep sinning, the covering is for the past, it's for the present, and for the future. You're completely covered in Christ. This is a present active indicative verb saying there is a continuing cleansing process that's going on in your life. Yes, once you're saved, you are completely atoned for past, present, and future. But this application of the atonement is dynamic and is ongoing. And it's just an encouragement because we know we sin. We know we fall short. We know that we want to be in the light and we do dark things. But there's a continual application of the blood, sacrificial atonement on your life and account before God, which keeps you holy. And that's the encouragement for those whose lives have been transformed by the gospel in the first place. The covering is as active as your sin. Isn't that encouraging? It's as active as your sin. He covers all sin. Verse 7. All sin is covered until we are ultimately standing sinless before our God. And what are we going to sing to God about? What are we going to sing to Christ about? Thank you so much for covering all of my sins so I can enjoy you and enjoy the people of God for all of eternity. All right, let's bring this home. Take-home points. Number one, this is your seminar on evangelism, by the way. You say, look, we never have evangelism classes around here. What's going on? Well, here it is. (laughs) Here's your evangelism class. Number one, sharing Christ with others. Be willing to talk about religion. You say, that's a great way to lose a friendship. You know, let's talk about religion and politics. Well, scrap the politics for a while and talk about religion. Talk about God. You know, if, if a Republican's on the wide road, what's more important to talk to him about, right? It's more important to talk to him about the narrow road. I mean, we, 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 need, to, we need to talk to people, all kinds of people, from every kind of political background or any kind of background. We need to be willing to broach religion and go there and have the awkward conversation. Number two, be willing to talk about God. You say, I I like to talk to people about hope, about meeting spiritual needs, etc. Well, that's important, but make sure that you set the bar high like verse 5 does. Be willing to talk about this God, the true God. You say, yeah, I mean, people aren't typically offended when I share Christ. Well, are you talking about this God, a God who is holy? When you compare God's holy nature to cultural events... That really can shake things up. But it's important for us to do it. It wakes people up to the reality of who God is and and what really matters and what his position is over events. He is sovereignly ruling over world events. And these are great ways to get into gospel conversations. Um, I was in a gospel conversation recently where 
I'm praying for this business owner, and my wife is praying for this business owner, and then all of a sudden we're talking to um, his wife some about Christ, and, and it was interesting. By praying for the, the husband, the wife became opened up to the gospel, and all of a sudden she was reading a People magazine about some gossip thing, and she mentioned something to me, and, and I just said, well, that's total depravity. What does that do? You know, that's sinful. And so all of a sudden, we began to talk, and I opened up this, this discussion from Genesis to Revelation, right? And she got an earful, but she wanted it <laughs> because she had been opened because we were praying for their family. She wanted to hear all about it. And so 30 minutes later, I, you know, took a breath, and I was done sharing Christ with her. But you do these things as the Lord sort of opens people up. And what else really matters? Number three, learn the art of the segue. Now, I had not heard that word, like what that word meant um, till later on in my adult life. But segue just means to make a smooth and natural transition. Learn the art of making a smooth and natural transition. Number one, ask something like, do you attend church? Do you have any needs I can pray for? Number two, How do you find satisfaction from day to day? Do you have a relationship with God? That's a great one to ask. Do you have a personal walk with Jesus Christ? Do you know God personally? Not just about him, about religion. Do you know him? And then they say, well, no. uh, Do you? Well, actually, since you asked, (laughs) here we go. You know, I I do. I love the Lord. This is where I go to church. These are people I love. Next one. How do you think your sins are forgiven? How do you think you're going to be cleansed? You know, I I know the evangelism question is, if you were to stand before a holy God and he were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? That's a good one to memorize. But really what you're asking is, how do you think your sins are going to be forgiven? You say, I have forgiveness in Christ and Christ alone. I I can't earn my way to, to heaven. I can't get my way into heaven on my own. It had to be what Jesus did for me. This was all part of the plan that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit orchestrated. Next one. What are you trusting in for eternal life? Where's your hope? Now, fourth, and my last point, talk about the benefits you have from being a Christian. Now, the reason I bring this up at the end is is simply this. Gospel conversations can start at any point in terms of a gospel presentation. Now, what do I mean by that? What I'm saying is you don't necessarily have to start with the holiness of God or the law of God to get into a gospel conversation. We are salt and light when we're just talking about how much we love the Lord. When you talk about valuing God above all things, when you talk about finding satisfaction in Christ or a Bible study you're really excited about and you share that with somebody else and you just talk that way, that in a backdoor kind of way, is creating some sort of moral line where people go, whoa, that person's over there and I'm over here. Even when you're just, you're just talking in terms of how encouraged you are in the Lord. That's the spiritual dynamic that's going on. I've talked to people, even fellow believers, counseling them or just talking about my own preferences or my own choices about music or entertainment or whatever, and had people come back to me and say, man, when you were beating me up over Christian music and beating me up about my music choices and and this and that, you know, in the day, I was just reeling. I had no idea any of that was going on. Yeah, you, you may not even know how much witnessing you're doing just by 
sharing out loud about God and your love for him, what fellowship you have with God, your fellowship with other believers, and your cleansed conscience and your status in him. So will you go with me and be on mission? Will you share Christ with other people? Help me reach Anchorage for Christ. We need to. We need to think of this in terms of a narrow road that few are finding and a wide road that's leading to destruction because eternity is a reality and we don't want people to perish in hell ongoingly without hope forever. We want them to know and love the Christ that we know, our Redeemer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for your word and we pray, God, that we would have settled...